So how's your summer to-do list going? If you're like most people, then you, you started the summer with really good intentions. A, a list of things that you, you were hoping to accomplish by summer's end. Well, I've got some news for you. We're, we're getting closer to summer's end. So it's time for us to, to check in on that to-do list. Now, it just so happens that I, I have access to your summer to-do list. And so I thought it would be fun for us to, to walk through your list of things you wanted to accomplish this summer as a group, all right? So, so here it is. Um, now, what you'll see is there were six things on your list for the summer, and only one has a check mark by it. Not a good start, my friends. Only one thing has been accomplished on your summer list. Let's find out what it is. What was the first thing on your list? You wanted to, oh, you wanted to go on three trips this summer. Truth is, you only went to one, went on one, and it was to your parents' house, so it doesn't count. <laughs> what else was on your list? Oh, you wanted to read five books. That's very ambitious. Now, the good news is, as soon as you made that list of five books, you purchased all five, and you have them, but you haven't touched them. Let's keep going. What else is on your list? You wanted to, oh, you wanted to limit your children's screen time this summer. You wanted them to be outside running around, but then the outside turned into a monster. <laughs> and if your children are sent outside now, CPS will be called because you're sending them out into 103 degree heat. So now they've watched more screens than ever before. What else was on your list? Oh, the lawn. You know what this is? You wanted, to, you wanted to keep the lawn from dying this summer. But truth is, it's just like last summer. Your, your lawn is as yellow as a highlighter, just like mine. What else was on your list that you didn't accomplish? Oh, pickleball. Oh, you, you wanted to learn how to play pickleball like every other annoying person in the world. But good for you for not following that trend. I'm glad you didn't get this one checked off. But there is one thing that you accomplished this summer on your list. What was it? Oh, sweat. Yeah, you were... You know you live in Houston, so you put one that was easy to accomplish on the list. Yeah, that is the only thing any of us has accomplished this summer. We started with good intentions, but uh, if you're like most people, uh, there's a lot that's unfinished on your list. I bring that up because today we are finishing a teaching series we've been in for the last five or six weeks here at St. Mark called The Bible Abridged, where we've walked through the entire story of the scriptures, start to finish, the whole narrative of scripture. And today we're looking at the final 23 books of the New Testament. That's easy, right? Last week, uh, Vicar Cody talked about uh, the four Gospels. There are 27 books in the New Testament, 39 in the Old, and he talked about the four Gospels that tell us the story, the true story of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And so that leaves 23 uh, letters and notes to churches and church leaders in the New Testament. And, and really, if, if we're to look at those 23 books, the, while they say so much and they have so many things to offer us, you, you could summarize those, those 23 books that remain in the Bible for us to cover. You could summarize them like this. God will finish what he started. Lots could be said about those 23 books, but the bottom line is this. God will finish what he has started. In those books, what you see is Paul and and other church leaders writing to church leaders and to the new churches that are starting, helping them understand two things, the implications of Jesus and the great expectation for those who follow Jesus. 
of the letters over and over again talk about how life is different for followers of Jesus because of what he's done. He has lived perfectly, died sacrificially, risen from the grave heroically, and that should change everything for those who've been baptized into his name and are followers of his. And so the scriptures, those last 23 books, go to great lengths to extol the implications of following and being loved by a Lord who has conquered death because it should, in fact, change everything. But those 23 books also have, as a, as a kind of laser focus, this grand and great expectation that this Jesus who lived, died, rose, and ascended is coming back. And, and the New Testament at every turn tries to pull your focus back to that. As you read those letters, it's trying to keep your eyes on that prize. Jesus who ascended is going to return and everything that feels unfinished, still broken, still bad, still tragic is going to be completed and fixed at the end. God is going to finish what he has started. There are life-changing implications to the work of Jesus Christ and there is a great expectation that followers of Jesus hold to. And these two things, these two things change everything for us. Indeed, at the return of Jesus Christ, he's going to fix all things. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The great battle has been fought and won in his death and resurrection, but, but the full implications of it won't be felt or lived out until he returns and he brings everything that was started in the garden full circle. I mean, think about what started in the garden. It started in a garden, but the scriptures tell us it's going to end in a city. It, it, started, it started with a couple, Adam and Eve, and it's going to end in a community. It started with Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, Sounds nice. But it's going to end with this community, this vast people of God dwelling with him every second of the day. And his presence will be so palpable and powerful. The book of Revelation says there will be no need for the sun in the sky because the presence of God is going to light up everything. It started in a garden where chaos was possible and indeed chaos ensued. And it's going to end in a recreated world, but there is nothing but shalom or peace. Everything is right. God is going to make all things right in the very end. But perhaps what's best about this world to come, this great expectation of Christ's return and him, him finishing everything that's been started and bringing everything's full circle is not just what go, is going to be there, but, but what is going to be absent from there. There will be no more death. There will be no more tears. You know what else there won't be any more of? No, but no more politics. Because yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there'll just be a king named Jesus, and he's good. He's never up for re-election. Right? And then, yeah. <laughs> And then there'll be no more social media. Because <laughs> it, yeah, right? it, it, it kind of ruins everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things, all things brand new. 
Now, now, when I tell you that, what stirs up in our hearts, the same question that stirred in the hearts of the disciples. We, we just read in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are looking at Jesus who's ascending, and they know that there's so much that's unfinished. And, and so they ask him a question essentially of when. When, when are you going to restore or, or bring about God's full reign and rule in this world? Is it now? Can it be now? Please tell us it's going to be right now. So listen again to that exchange. From Acts chapter 1, starting, starting at verse 6. So when they had come together, they, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus doesn't tell us when. He just, as we said a few weeks ago, he just tells us what we're to do in the meantime. He doesn't tell us when he's going to return and, and finish all that he started, but he just tells us that in the meantime, our task, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is given to all of his believers, our task is to share the implications of what he's accomplished in his death and resurrection with as many people as possible, and to help others share in the great expectation of his return and, and all that is wrong being made right and whole and being brought to completion. Now, what's really interesting to me is the mission strategy that, that the early church adopted. Jesus said, I'm going to send you out into the world to share the expectations and the implications of who I am and what I've done. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and empower you. But what's interesting is they accomplished this, but they didn't accomplish it in typical ways that something is spread around the known world. They didn't accomplish it through power because they had none. They didn't accomplish it through persuasion because no one would really listen to them. They accomplished it through, through being peculiar. I mean, Jesus' mission strategy through the early church and even through the church today is this. Go out into the world and be delightfully weird. It's true. You look at history and the spread of the church, it was fast and it was incredible and it was indeed miraculous. You start with maybe, maybe 150 people who are attached to the Jesus movement at his ascension. And then within the scope of 200 years, which sounds like a long time, but it's not really a long time, it has overtaken the world, not through power, not through persuasion, but through a particular people living in a certain way that caught the attention of everybody else and made them say, what? You guys are so weird. But like in a good way. Uh, there, there's lots to be said about the life that the early church lived and the life that we're called to live as followers of Jesus as these implications of who he is takes hold and this expectation that we have influences us. Uh, but, but most historians boil it down to four things. Four things uh, that are marks of the church that are used to stir uh, the curiosity of the rest of the world. And those four things are this. Number one, the early church was marked with a radical sense of generosity. They shared what they had with each other and with others. They gave from what they possessed to make sure other people could share in the blessings. And in an ancient world and in a modern world where everybody is looking out for themselves and building piles to hold on to, a group of people who are like, hey, you need something? Here, have all of mine. <laughs> or, oh, you, you enjoy this too? Here, come sit with me and share mine. 
That was peculiar. Uh, The other mark of the church was a a real moral clarity. Not moral superiority. That's that's different. Not a self-righteous understanding of what's right and what's wrong, but a humble moral clarity that, that was at odds with with the cultural sensibilities of the day. In particular, two things. Uh, The early churches approached to the poor. Not just they were generous to the poor, but, but they sought justice for the poor and the weak and the oppressed and treated them as equals, and they saw it as a moral certainty that they had to. We have no option. This is what's good. Uh, The other thing that stood out was the early church's uh, sexual ethic. In a world where where sex was kind of this commodity that was shared and used however anybody saw fit, sound familiar, the early church had had a sense of purpose for sexuality and and a right place and usage for sexuality. And that that put them at odds with the rest of the world. Uh, The other mark of the early church that made them stand out as peculiar was this, this sense of radical hospitality. Not just radical hospitality and that they put out a nice spread of food for their guests, but this this unbiased hospitality. There was this reputation that was grown among among the ancient world where when Christians were gathered, everybody was treated the same. Whether you were rich or you were poor, whether you came from a Jewish background or a non-Jewish background, uh, whether whether you were in the high caste or the low caste or the middle caste of society, when you gathered under the banner of being a follower of Jesus, Everybody was treated as a brother and sister. And and that just didn't happen in the ancient world. In a world where everyone is carving up who belongs to who and who's right and who's wrong. And this is our group and this is your group and you're in and you're out. A group of people that said, hey, if you're here in the name of Jesus, we are one. We are the same. That stood out. And then the fourth thing, this is probably the most powerful thing. In a world of suffering and struggle and in the ancient world, uh, a, a world of persecution, the early church had profound patience. They understood that suffering and struggle was temporary, even if it took their entire life. It was still temporary in the grand scheme of things. And so the early church showed this profound sense of patience in the midst of hardship or poverty or their life being taken from them because of what they believed. They were patient. God in the end is going to make this right. God in the end is going to be good. And the rest of the world looked at this generosity, this moral clarity, this this hospitality and this patience, and they just said, what? What What is it about you? This is so weird, but I like it. And the church grew. And, and that's, that's the calling on the church today. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, your, your calling is to be delightfully peculiar to the rest of the world and let the rest of the world go, what is it that you know? Well, there's some implications of this person named Jesus and there's this expectation that I have that shapes everything that I do. That's what you're seeing. That's what you see in me. Which... Which stirs up a pastoral question in me for you, just as an aside. It's probably good for for you and I on occasion to look at our life and say, am I I weird? Like like in the the right way, in the good way, if you're here as a follower of Jesus, am am I weird? Is Is there anything about me that has been shaped and influenced, so shaped and so influenced by the implications of a resurrected Savior and the expectation of his return where he's going to make all things right? 
that has so shaped my life that it makes me different from everybody else in certain noticeable or substantive ways? Am, am I any more generous than someone who doesn't have Jesus? Am I any more hospitable than someone who doesn't know Jesus? Do I have any other moral clarity, not superiority, but clarity than someone who doesn't know Jesus? Uh, do, do, I have, do I have any other sense of, of patience in the face of struggle than someone who doesn't know Jesus? And if my life is just functionally the same, the exact same as everybody else who doesn't have him, then, then what I need to do is wrestle with why. Have I not come to terms? Do I need to grow in my understanding of the, the, the implications of forgiveness of sin and a life that doesn't end? Do I need to wrestle with or have a fresh encounter with the expectation that Jesus is coming back and everything bad is going to become untrue? Do I need to have a fresh encounter with those things so they can change me and arrest me into a different way of living so that somebody else who lives in close proximity to me can notice the difference in me and I can humbly share it with them and say, I believe in certain implications of a resurrected Savior and I believe in an expectation that the troubles we have today are not all that's going to exist. Now, one of the questions that stirs when we talk about this is uh, a question of, will I experience it? I mean, the question really comes in two forms. Number one, can I trust that Jesus really will come back and finish everything that God has started and establish this new reality where everything comes full circle? And number two, if he does come back, how do I know for certain that I'm going to be that I'm going to be blessed by it, that I'm going to be on the inside and not the outside, that I'm going to, I'm going to experience the good of it, not the bad of it, that I'm going, to, I'm going to be included in this eternal kingdom. Well, I'm so glad that you've wrestled with that question because I got an answer for you. Here's how you know that Jesus is going to come back and finish everything that God started, his life, his death, and his resurrection. I know one of you at least out there is saying, I knew he was going to say that. But it's true. Jesus Christ promised that he would live for you, die for you, and he really did die, and he promised that he would rise again. And then he, history tells us, not just the Bible, history tells us he did, in fact, rise from the dead. And look, I don't know about you, but for me, if somebody promises that they're going to die but rise and then actually rises from the grave, I'm going to believe the other things they promise. And he promised that he's coming back. And so I believe him, and so should you. And how do I know that I'm going to be on the right side of that moment when it does occur? Because I have been baptized into his kingdom, chosen as a member of his family, because that's what baptism is. Now, does God work in and around and even outside baptism at times? Sure. But baptism, the scriptures tells us, is the moment where you publicly, personally, officially become a member of God's family, where you don't have to look inside your own heart, or your own head, or look at the work of your own hands to have any kind of certainty. You look at his hand choosing you, dunking you in the water, or sprinkling you with his promises and saying, you are mine. And that's the moment you know that all that Jesus has won, all the implications of his life, death, and resurrection have been handed to you personally. You've been given the ticket, so to speak. And that's how you know. And here's, here's another reason why this is really good news. It means that, it means that God's follow-through is in no way, shape, or form dependent on you. God's follow-through, bringing this kingdom about and including you in it, is in no way, shape, or form dependent upon you. It's dependent upon the life, death, resurrection, promises, and choosing of God. Amen. 
That's what it's dependent upon. And that's, that's good news because very often we will sit here and we'll say, man, well, I didn't finish those five books I was planning to this summer, so maybe I'm more of a mess than I thought. Or, man, my kids had a ton of screen time this summer. I'm a terrible parent. I wonder if I'm meeting all of God's standards or expectations. Or in some other way, shape, and form, our, our past comes to haunt us, and we start wondering or worrying. And you don't, you don't have to do that. God's follow-through does not depend on you. He's going to finish what he started for you, apart from you. That's the great expectation and these two things, the implications of the work of Jesus Christ and the great expectation of his return uh, are, we are told, in those 23 books of the New Testament that remain apart from the Gospels, uh, we are told are supposed to be so, so central to our existence as followers of Jesus and, and, and such a point of focus for us as followers of Jesus that they transform our daily lives. Specifically, how we deal with suffering and struggle and pain. I'm going to tell you something you might not believe. But the truth of who Jesus is and the promise of his return is meant to shape how you see struggle and even tragedy in such a way that you walk around believing, believing that the struggles of today will make the end sweeter. That the struggles and the difficulties of today will make tomorrow, and by tomorrow I mean Jesus' return, where he finishes all that God has started, will make that day even sweeter. And that, my friends, is total redemption of even the worst tragedies and pains and difficulties. When was the last time you went on like a really long road trip? You've been on a long road trip before, right? Maybe you went on a long road trip this summer. I, I personally, I love a long road trip, but, but road trips, things can go bad on a road trip, right? Like you can have a four-year-old in the back seat who all of a sudden is like, I don't feel good, and then they vomit. And then you smell it in that car for the next four years. <laughs> or, or you can blow a tire, be on the side of the road in the Texas heat and discover on the side of the road that you don't have a spare or that you don't know how to change a tire. That's a bad day for a road trip. Amen. Or you could, you could find that the podcast that you were really excited to listen to for the next six hours, for whatever reason, doesn't want to load on your phone and you are forced to talk to your spouse <laughs> for hours. Bad things can happen on a road trip. But here's the thing. When bad things happen on the road trip, what it does is it makes the eventual arrival at your destination so much sweeter. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Like, like you, you, go through, you go through hell to get to that heaven of being at grandma's house in Ohio, right? And you pull into that driveway. And even though you've been there a couple times before, and even though you got to sleep on a pull-out bed, you finally arrive after that hellish road trip, and you stumble out of the car onto her driveway, and you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> we, we have made it. We have made it. And you're on the ground, like, kissing the cement. You're hugging Grandma like you've never hugged Grandma before. And you're like, we've arrived, kids. We've arrived. And they're looking at you like you're crazy. The troubles of the road make the destination sweeter. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is talking about his own struggles as a pastor and a minister of the gospel and also the struggles of the early church. And he says this, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond 
all comparison. Now, Paul is not minimizing the struggles and the tragedies of life in this world. What he's saying is, when we eventually arrive in the world that Jesus will create at his return, it will be so glorious, so grand, so perfect, so everything we've ever wanted it and needed it to be, that it will make even this seem like a light momentary affliction. And I know that that's hard to believe when you're facing tragedy or loss or any kind of substantive difficulty, but, but it's a truth we take on faith. Paul says when we arrive at that place that Jesus will bring when he returns, it will make even these troubles today seem like light momentary afflictions. But not only that, these light momentary afflictions will make that arrival at the end even sweeter as you stumble out of the car of this horrible road trip called life and you realize God has been faithful and brought me to this place that he has promised. Oh, we fall on our knees and we kiss the concrete made of gold, right? Like that's what's going, going to happen. And that is full redemption where God is going to use even the struggles and difficulties of this life to make you appreciate the profound blessing that is the return of Jesus even more. And so what people of faith do, walking around with the implications of a resurrected Jesus and this expectation of his return, we walk around, and I, I know this can seem so strange or so far off, but just go with me on this. We walk around, and when we deal with difficulties, something inside of us, because we know Christ, says, this is awful. But it's making it sweeter. This is terrible. But God, you're just making it sweeter. This is tragic. But you're making it sweeter. For the day when your son comes again, and there is resurrection, and there is reunion, and there is an arrival at the world where there is no death, and no tears, and no pain. And it lasts forever. I know you're making it sweeter. Can you go through life this week, and as you face, as you face difficulties of any kind, big or small, can you, through the lens of faith, can you look at it and go, call it what it is. It's awful, it's terrible, it's tragic, it's difficult. Call it what it is, but, but say this in your heart, filled with faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're making it sweeter. I have an expectation that you're going to come and you're going to make all things right, and on that day, that will be sweeter because of this struggle. That will be sweeter because of this struggle. I would argue to you that there is no better feeling in the world than checking something off a to-do list. Oh, that feels good, doesn't it? It feels so good. But if you're like me, you've got lists of things in various areas of life that are unfinished. And we live in a world where there's a lot of unfinished business, right? A lot that's still bad and a lot that's still broken. But, but the full promise of our faith is this. God will finish what he has started. God will finish what he has started. And until that day, our task is to be people of a peculiar hope, a peculiar confidence, a peculiar peace, 
a weird knowledge of how we are loved by a God above us and how we are empowered by a spirit within us. Our task is to live out the implications and to embrace the expectation in such a way that it, that it proclaims to the rest of the world that there is more to this life than what you see. And it plants seeds in the life of others of what is to come. When I'm generous today, I'm planting a seed of the ultimate generosity, the presence of God that's to come tomorrow. When I'm, when I'm hospitable today, I'm planting a seed of the ultimate hospitality where every tribe and every tongue is welcomed at the throne of Jesus tomorrow. When I'm patient today in the face of suffering, I'm planting a seed of the, the satisfaction that is to come when Jesus wipes every tear from every eye forever. I'll leave you with this. The last words recorded in the scriptures of Jesus are not found in the Gospels. They're found in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It's the second to last verse. Jesus says this, second to last verse of the Bible. He says, behold, I am coming soon. And we expect he will. Amen.